You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 374 and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. I said on episode 369, I was going to invite Jared on and I'm a woman of my word. Jared White is a web developer who lives and works in Portland, Oregon. He first got his start building websites back in the 90s and has been a proud Rubyist for 13 years and counting. He's passionate about rolling back some of the complexity of the modern web and finding simpler paths forward using easy to understand tools and, of course, Ruby. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Jared. Well, thanks, Brittany. It's awesome to be here. Well, Jared, I am very interested to hear what your developer origin story is. We'll have to wind back the clock a ways. <laughs> it's funny. I don't know if a lot of people can say this, but I grew up in a programming household. My dad was a programmer starting in the 70s, back in the early days of Unix and all of that. So I kind of grew up as a computer nerd in some fashion. Didn't necessarily think I would become a programmer, but what happened is the web came along and I kind of got all enamored with it around 1994, 1995, you know, as everything was taking off. And I was in a band at the time, a Celtic music band, actually. And, you know, I was thinking, well, we need a website to promote the band. So I just cobbled something together and it looked terrible, but every website looked terrible back then. So it was fine. And then I got better and better and and really liked doing that. And then I believe around 1997 is when I first got contacted by someone else saying they needed a website and they're asking me about it and then asking me, how much would you charge? And suddenly I, I found myself having a career as a web developer. Yeah, so I got into that and over the next number of years kind of became more serious about learning backend development, learning databases, learning all that kind of stuff and kind of went through a, a series of technology stacks from PHP to Python, a little bit of Java. And then I discovered Ruby and, you know, Rails kind of around the 2.x era of Rails and fell in love with that. Well, actually, I should say I initially really liked what I saw, but I was kind of stubborn about learning a new language. So I kind of tried to replicate some of what Rails was doing in PHP. And after a little bit of time realized, you know, it's (laughs) (laughs) part of the magic of Rails is Ruby, the language. I decided to hop aboard the Ruby train and get on the rails and and all that good stuff. So, yeah, since uh, 2008, I've mostly focused on being a Rails developer. That's fantastic. Now, I believe you are also a member of the Andrew Mason Super Fan Club. And <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> that is how I found out about Bridgetown. And so, you know, as president of that super fan club, I saw Andrew tweeting about it. And so I dived into it and it just I would love to get into like the origin story. And, you know, let's start with what is Bridgetown and why did you create it? So, again, winding back the clock a little bit, I was actually working on sort of my own CMS, as it were, shortly after the initial launch of the iPad. So this is like 2011, 2012. I was trying to build something that was kind of tablet first, tablet focused, which sounds pretty silly in hindsight with responsive design. But, you know, at the time the iPad came out, I think there was a lot of sentiment that, oh, you know, we're going to have all these cool experiences on the tablet where you'll swipe around and pinch zoom things and it'll be really exciting. So I was trying to build a CMS that way using Rails, of course, but that didn't really go anywhere as a product. And I kind of fell out of the, the line of thinking that it was even a good idea. And then the question, of course, was, well, what should I do instead for 
working on content websites as opposed to applications. And I'd done some stuff with WordPress, but I really didn't like kind of being stuck in the PHP world and all of the security problems and performance problems of WordPress. I know it's gotten better now, but back then it was like literally you couldn't have a WordPress site on the Internet without getting hacked at some point. And that did happen to me on more than one occasion. So I kind of went looking around for something else, something different and came across Jekyll. You know, Jekyll is really one of the first static site generators of the modern era. You know, it kind of got people realizing that static sites are cool. It's one of these things where like early website frameworks or whatever you want to call them kind of were static site generators. I think movable type was a was a well-known one way back in the day. But, you know, things like WordPress and Platforms like Rails kind of got everyone thinking, oh, you know, you need a database, you need an application server, you need all this code running all the time to, to serve anything. And then Jekyll kind of, you know, got everyone thinking, oh, wait, maybe we can just stick some markdown files in a folder somewhere and, and poof, <laughs> a, a website kind of just emerges and is deployed somewhere. And that's that. So I really like that about Jekyll. And of course, it was a bonus that Jekyll was built with Ruby and I used uh, liquid templates, which I was familiar with. So I was like, oh, this is really cool. And if I can start using this. So around 2016 is when I started getting into Jekyll. And then I ended up working on some different client projects using that and even built like, you know, simple editing systems with Rails to produce content for the Jekyll deployment and all that kind of thing. So I was you know, really excited about that and then also getting excited about new services coming along like Netlify and, and others that we're really kind of pioneers in this new idea that you can use Git and you can use files to deploy websites really quickly and, and also really inexpensively, like in many cases free, like <laughs> literally just have a free site on the Internet that also happens to be very secure and extremely performant because at the end of the day, it's just files on a CDN somewhere. So this whole approach uh, is sometimes now called the jam stack. Other people just still use the term static sites, but it was pioneered by Jekyll. However, the problem over the last, I'd say, two to three years is the Jekyll project itself has kind of been withering on the vine. And it's really unfortunate. There's been a lack of, of new feature development and the core team that's still there. It's basically just said it's in maintenance mode. So when I caught wind of this early last year in, in 2020, I was kind of disillusioned because I felt like, well, you know, <laughs> being a Rubyist, like I'm already on the defensive around my choice to stick with Ruby and try to use Ruby based solutions. And now to see that Jekyll is kind of not really going anywhere, it's really unfortunate. So I basically had two choices, either switch to something else, you know, maybe something in the JavaScript world, which was just exploding at that time. Or maybe something else like Hugo, which is written in Go. It's very fast to build sites, but you know you have to write anything <laughs> you want to do in <laughs> Go in terms of like a plugin or something. I mean, there's stack site generators in, in any language. You, you can find them for Python, even PHP. But I wanted to use Ruby. And the only other one that stood out in the world of Ruby is Middleman. And I know some folks that are in the Rails community reach for Middleman for some reasons I'll get into later. It just wasn't for me. I really want to just keep using Jekyll, but better, you know, the next big version of Jekyll, whatever that might be. So the other option that came to me was, well, what if I just fork Jekyll? <laughs> and initially, it's one of those crazy ideas. You know, we all get it one time or another and then go, nah, <laughs> no way. Like, <laughs> uh, uh. 
And then I was just kind of just kvetching about the state of Jekyll on a local Portland Ruby forum. And someone there, without me saying anything whatsoever, they said, uh, well, you could always fork it, you know. <laughs> and for some reason, hearing somebody else repeat back to me my own crazy thought, I was like, oh, well, yeah, I guess I could, right? <laughs> so that's how Bridgetown was born. Bridgetown, the name, it's a nickname for Portland, which is where I live and work. So right from the get-go, it was kind of this crazy idea born from the Portland Ruby community. And that's exactly what I did. I forked Jekyll. Initially, it was just literally like search and replace all the constants and you know, various configurations to say Bridgetown instead of Jekyll. And I totally didn't expect that to work. And then it did. And then it's like, oh, wow, like this could actually work. And ever since then, it's just been just a, a whole bunch of effort, not just me, but several other contributors in the open source community that's built up around Bridgetown. That's wonderful. And so what was your first move after, you know, inventing Bridgetown? Were you moving clients to it? Did you move yourself to it? You know, what was that path? I mean, I try to dog food it as much as I can. So I do have some client projects, probably most of them still in development. But yeah, client projects running on Bridgetown now instead of Jekyll. I've migrated my own sites over to it, of course. And yeah, and, and also just, you know, lots of experimenting with kind of new approaches to, you know, uh, taking advantage of Ruby, taking advantage of Jamstack architecture and, and just trying to push the envelope. A lot of the early things I did after forking Bridgetown were to add in what I felt were sort of baseline things that you have to have these days. So, for example, uh, Bridgetown comes with a really nice Webpack integration. So just like with Rails, you can use Webpacker to you know, compile and serve up JavaScript, CSS, uh, you know, all the kind of modern front-end packages that you need to install. And you can do that with Bridgetown as well. And, and not only that, but we have a sort of automatic configuration step you can take to add in Tailwind and some other popular libraries and things like that. So yeah, that was sort of the early days was to kind of get to a, a better baseline. And since then, it's just been kind of adding a lot of features that you can find now with, with other modern static site generators that I feel like we really need to focus on those to stay competitive. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is leading edge application performance monitoring designed to help Rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With a developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance issues like N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy knowing that Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. Scout has also launched its new error monitoring feature add-on for Ruby applications. Now you can connect your error reporting and application monitoring data on one platform. See for yourself why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend and try their error monitoring and APM free for 14 days, no credit card required. And as an added bonus for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash Ruby on Rails. Thanks as always to Scout for their continued support. I follow you and Bridgetown on GitHub and it just seems incredibly active and I agree with you. Having these projects out there that are Ruby-based is so important to show that our community is thriving. So I just love seeing it. I'd love to hear more about your recent release. 
So the, the latest release, Bridgetown 0.21, we are working towards a, an official 1.0 release, but part of that is to get what I call API stable. So there's still work on going to get to that point. But you know, essentially the project is pretty stable now. A lot of folks are using it in production, so don't let the zero dot fool you. <laughs> but yeah, in the latest release, it was really focused on kind of rethinking the place of Ruby in what you're doing when you create a site. So instead of Ruby kind of being this implementation detail of the software of like, oh, you know, this tool happens to be written in Ruby, but I'm not necessarily doing anything Ruby specific as I build my site. In this release, it was really focused on let's take advantage of the actual Ruby language to really be able to enable some cool things you can do on a site. So one example is over in the Rails community, a really popular project from GitHub called View Component has kind of taken hold. And so a lot of people are writing View Components. And essentially what that means is for each little piece of your site, you know, whether it's a nav bar or like a card over on the side or like a part of a, of a blog article or any sort of little piece of the site visually and semantically, where in the past you think that's like a template partial or something like that. With view components, there's this idea that you write actual Ruby classes for each of these components, and each of those Ruby classes can take a bunch of different pieces of data as input and do things to them and transform them in different ways, and then provide all that to a sidecar template file. And for anyone that's kind of familiar with the front end world with React and Vue and other libraries like that, you know, it's a very similar idea where, you know, you have these nice encapsulated little code files that have some kind of template associated with it. And you can reuse those components in all kinds of different places. You can even create your own libraries that are just component libraries and then reuse those across multiple sites. So anyway, a view component enabled that for Rails as sort of a server side approach to components. And we have that in Bridgetown as well. There's actually two different ways we implemented it. One was to have a native component architecture for Bridgetown. So you don't even need to install view component or use that. You can use something that is very similar in, in sort of a basic sense. And that works well. But we also did this crazy <laughs> project, which amazingly ended up working where we actually can import view component as a gem for a Bridgetown site. And then you can use view component just like you would on a Rails site. And under the hood, there's just this little shim that kind of fools view component into thinking it's running in a Rails application when it's actually not. So I know it sounds wacky, but it works. And we have a proof of concept site where it loads up a bunch of primer components from GitHub's primer component library. And it displays all those and it shows how to, you know, write out the ERB code to display the components. And it's just like how I'd use it on a Rails site, but it's on a Bridgetown static site and you can easily deploy that on Render or Versal or Netlify or, or any of these kind of hosting services. It's, it's pretty exciting. That is super exciting. Wow. I just love how inventive that is and how, you know, you're almost creating a bridge between a static site generator and Rails. So I'm curious as well, if I'm comfortable with Rails, you know, how would I feel about using Bridgetown? Again, not to keep repeating myself here, but one of the things that ultimately I found kind of frustrating about working with Jekyll is it didn't feel like as a Ruby developer and as a Rails developer, Jekyll was really giving me any benefits. 
In other words, like, yes, Jekyll's written in Ruby, but there's not really much you can do as a Rubyist to make Jekyll shine. Like it, it does have a plugin API, but it's not very well documented and it's kind of finicky. And pretty much every plugin I've looked at, like if you go to the source code of the Jekyll plugin and look at it, like they're all very different, which to me is a sign that there's no real sort of canonical way to develop plugins. So a real goal with Bridgetown was to find ways to kind of work towards if somebody's comfortable with Rails, if somebody's been using Ruby for a while and then looks at Bridgetown and has questions like, well, can I write templates in ERB? And is it easy to write plugins to call APIs and pull down data and generate new pages and things like that? We want the answer to all those questions to be yes, (laughs) (laughs) definitely. So a lot of the work has gone into providing ERB template support and even Haml and Slim and making a better plugin API that isn't necessarily like a Rails API, but feels like it could be. It feels just nicer and more ergonomic. And we're continuing to push that forward. And sort of the ultimate goal is to provide an architecture where if someone's starting to look at building a site, you know, say it's a portfolio or an e-commerce site or something where you might want to pull real-time data from the back end or have some kind of login to be able to access something behind a paywall or you know any number of things you might need a back end for. Like if someone is thinking, well, can I just spin up a little Rails app and use that as a back end and then use Bridgetown as the public site and kind of wire the two together? Is there a way to do that? Again, we want the answer to be yes. <laughs> There's definitely a way to do that. So that's my main focus over the next few months is to kind of get us to a point where this sort of unified, static, plus dynamic architecture really works and really makes sense. And there's a a good developer story around that idea. I totally agree. Now, from a marketing standpoint, I'm curious, was it a situation where if you make it, they come? Or did you really have to put a lot of effort into marketing that Bridgetown now exists, looking for contributors? Like, how did that pan out? That's a good question. It's still an ongoing effort. I think overall, I've been really happy and pleasantly surprised by the reception, particularly in the early days. You know, I, I kind of assumed that it would just sort of be this weird, obscure thing that hardly anyone comments on or or knows about. And I might have to really spend a a great deal of time and effort to get the word out. I benefited from some really nice early wins, one of which was the folks over at the Remote Ruby podcast really graciously had me on, like almost before (laughs) I accomplished anything with the project. So yet another reason I am part of the Andrew Mason fan club. But yeah, I just I think there was a bit of a pinup demand within a certain subset of Ruby and particularly Rails developers of like, you know, as soon as they caught wind of this idea that, hey, you know, we need to stay relevant, we need to stay competitive, we need to push things forward in this area of building static sites and using Jamstack architecture, but still being Rubyists instead of going to pick up Gatsby or some other project that has nothing to do with Ruby. So that was great. And I think now is kind of the harder work of getting to that long tail of people that maybe are have only passing familiarity with Ruby and and even some folks that are maybe skeptical of like, why would I even learn Ruby? JavaScript works fine and everyone's using that. And I want to explore ways to kind of approach an educational path with regards to Bridgetown. Like, you know, hey, you can learn Ruby and you can learn some of the cool things you can do with Ruby. 
and you just so happen to be building some websites with Bridgetown while you're doing it. And then if you want, you can move on to more advanced Rails applications or some other framework, and it all kind of ties together somehow. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. I have been a Honey Badger user for the past seven years. When I start a new job, I no longer ask, do you use Honey Badger? It is instead, where's my Honey Badger login? What's Honey Badger, you ask? Well, when application errors happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error, uptime, and check-in monitoring into a single, easy-to-use platform. Honey Badger sends you real-time alerts with all of the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding so you can quickly find it, fix it, and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issue or your background jobs go missing or silently fail. Go to honeybadger.io and discover how Star, Josh, and Ben created a 100% bootstrap monitoring solution. Why is this important? Self-funding means that they only answer to you, the developer, rather than a venture capital overlord. Thanks to Honey Badger for supporting the show. I love the idea of a static site generator being an entryway into the Ruby community. We need to bring more folks in, and I love that inclination. I mean, that's really a thing with the JavaScript world right now. You know, you have Mm -hmm. this sort of path of maybe somebody learns a little bit of HTML and then maybe they learn how to style some things and then they learn some JavaScript. And then it's like, oh, hey, you know, JavaScript now you can use the static site generator written with JavaScript to produce a whole website. And that's great. But I think, you know, the place where I have a little bit of a, a question mark is at the point where someone wants to kind of do more back-end coding sort of exercises, the path forward then becomes, you know, learning Node and maybe learning how to deploy serverless functions and all this kind of stuff that's very buzzword, buzzword, buzzword. And I feel like there is perhaps a better way. And anyone who is enthusiastically a a Ruby on Rails developer will be nodding along saying, yes, there is a better way. (laughs) But it's hard to communicate how that works sometimes because there might be this big divide between someone knowing a little bit of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and building a site and sort of convincing them like, you know, hey, it might be worth your while to learn some Ruby. And here's sort of this whole new world that opens up to you. Any way we can sort of jumpstart that process, I get really excited about. So if I'm a listener listening to this podcast and enthusiastically nodding my head like I am right now, and I'm currently, you know, sitting on a Jekyll site, Is there a clear migration path to go to Bridgetown? We're working on the documentation that will really help that. The short answer is there's not really a way to just take an existing Jekyll site and, you know, switch the gem file out to point to Bridgetown and it works. We've diverged backwards compatibility was actually never a goal of the project. A lot of the concepts are similar. I would say with the right documentation in place, someone might be able to go through an exercise for perhaps an hour or two, and then everything will be working. But there is a little bit of a process there, and we haven't done a good job of documenting that. So that also is a big focus going forward. It's also kind of tied into this idea of getting to 1.0 and API stable. So you know, I'd hate to tell somebody, hey, tech your Jekyll site and convert it to Bridgetown now, and then a few months later say, oh, and by the way, now you have to convert it yet again to something else that we've come up with here. So I want to get more stable with the overall architecture so that we can confidently tell folks, hey, the doors are open. Welcome to Bridgetown. Let's get this party started. 
<laughs> what a tagline. <laughs> so that leads me into my next question, Jared. How can listeners support Bridgetown? Probably the first thing you can do is just simply go to the Bridgetown website, which is uh, bridgetownrb.com. And we have links to a really fun Discord chat room. You're welcome to join there and ask questions or submit ideas or just generally hang out. And then also I'm on the GitHub sponsorships program. So you're welcome to sponsor me. Literally like every single person that is a sponsor of the Bridgetown project and of me, you know, it's just, it's amazing. Like I I don't take any of it for granted. It's just awesome that I actually get to do some open source work here and, and people appreciate that. And that's awesome. So that's another way to support the project. And then the last way is, you know, if you build something with Bridgetown, uh, we'd love to hear about it. Please get the word out so we can help you get the word out. So outside of Bridgetown, are there other backend frameworks besides Rails that you've been keeping a close eye on? Yeah, there have been so many good Ruby frameworks for web development. And I always feel a little bad when I you know, look at different ones and start to play around with it a bit and then think, uh, I just want to go back to Rails because <laughs> uh, I do believe in a rising tide floats all boats. It's good to have different projects and different things going on contributing to the ecosystem. However, I think I finally found something I'm kind of falling in love with, uh, and that's Rhoda. It was initially created by Jeremy Evans, who's been in the Ruby community for a long time. I think he's actually one of the core team contributors to Ruby. And it's a really interesting take on how you'd structure a web app. Uh, it's, it's based on this idea that you kind of have this tree of routes. And instead of the sort of conventional idea you might have with Rails or even Sinatra, where it's like, OK, here's a route and then you know do something with that. And here's another route and then do something with that. Instead, it's like you kind of start with essentially slash, right? It's like the root of your website. And within a block that handles that, you know, you might have some more blocks to handle whatever's next on the trees. There might be several options there. And then within each of those subtree portions, you might have yet more blocks that handle part of that tree. So, you know, kind of in this potentially single file, you're literally building a tree of logic for your site and for really large applications that might seem bananas, but for maybe a simple API that a static site might connect to uh, <laughs> the wheelhouse. I'm, I'm definitely in here. It's really appealing. So I'm experimenting with that and that's been really fun. Well, I am definitely going to have to have Jeremy on the podcast as well. So Connor recommended you. I'm just going to keep the chain alive. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear a Rota themed podcast. That sounds awesome. All right. It's on, it's on the list. So, Jared, I know you are a self-professed nerd and I know you love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> For the listeners who might have not dived into it yet, what do you recommend as the must watch movie or series? Doctor Strange. I love Benedict Cumberbatch, so I will second that. Yeah, it doesn't always come up as someone's favorite movie or even top five. Everyone's always ranking and making lists. So I don't always mm -hmm. see Doctor Strange float up to the top. Again, uh, kind of a funny thing. I didn't grow up reading comics. I wasn't into the, you know, the comic book scene. But my dad had been in his teenage years. So I kind of heard these like secondhand stories of like the comics he loved most uh, when he was reading them back in the day. And Doctor Strange was one of his favorite characters. So he'd tell me all about, you know, these just, you know, wild stories of like alternate dimensions and 
mystical arts and all this kind of stuff. It sounded really cool as somebody who's like, what kind of comic would I want to read about? That definitely sounded appealing. So I went into the movie with kind of high hopes that it would, you know, be as just wild and <laughs> mind bending as the, you know, the comics uh, seemingly had been. And I got all of that. So, yeah, I love Doctor Strange. I'm super excited about the sequel. I'm also really enjoying Loki so far. Uh, that's I think that might be my favorite of the new Disney Plus series. I think the character of Loki and just the whole premise of it is awesome. I'm going to have to check that out. I watched WandaVision, but I haven't gotten into Loki yet. So I'm almost waiting for a couple episodes to be out so that way I can binge it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's hard to wait week from week, you know? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, way too much energy is being expended on thinking about <laughs> what what's going to be in the next episode and where the story's going. And, you know, I find myself watching videos of just people speculating about what's coming. And But it's fun. It's fun. It is fun. So, Jared, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Ruby on Rails communities? I think the community is really healthy. And I might not have said that a few years ago. I think a lot of people kind of had this angst around. I mean, it's a meme at this point. Is Ruby dead or is Rails dead? And, you know, I distinctly remember even a number of years ago now, but before Angular was kind of rewritten. So in the initial like Angular JS days, I had people basically telling me like, you're going to have to learn Angular JS, and that's where all the energy is. And <laughs> now in the era of React being dominant, it does seem funny, but I think there was a real concern, and that concern kind of drove people to make various decisions and, you know, on some teams and various projects and whatnot. And it really feels like that's turning around. And you know, maybe it's anecdotal, maybe it's just hearsay, I don't know. It feels like a lot of people who have kind of stuck around in the Ruby community or Rails in particular, feel much more confident to say like, you know, this is the choice we've made and it's working and we're excited about it. And then there's like a whole lot of new people coming into the community. Just, you know, with my little bit of presence on Twitter lately, talking about Ruby, I chat with folks who are learning Ruby or maybe picked up a little bit of it a few years ago and then kind of got sidetracked with other things and are coming back to it now. So I think it's good. You know, there's always more to do. There's always places to go with how we talk about what's beneficial about learning Ruby. Perhaps for the first time in a number of years, it really does feel like the community is, is growing and is a great place to be. I totally agree. So how can listeners follow you? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter and on GitHub at Jared C. White. And I also have a website, jaredwhite.com. Uh, and my sort of professional web studio website is whitefusion.studio. Fantastic. Jared, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I so admire all the work that you're doing on Bridgetown. And I am just so excited for the work that you're putting in there and introducing new community members through it. And we'll be excited to have you on when it hits 1.0. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.